So here's the deal. This is going to be my episode 2. I had recorded a lot for a different episode 2 that was going to cover Valaquenta. Um, but Valaquenta, I was reading it, and I had recorded all this audio for it. But honestly, Valaquenta is... It would not make an interesting podcast episode just because it's it's almost just an inventory of the characters that are going to be in subsequent chapters. So I figured it would be easier for me to just do those subsequent chapters and like give you the details of the characters as they arise. Um, because otherwise I'd have a 30 to 40 minute episode that is just me basically listing all the Valar and describing them, uh, describing their personalities and things. And <clears throat> honestly I don't think that would be <clears throat> very uh, interesting for anybody. Um, but a lot of them are really cool. So as as they kind of are brought up, the, I will talk more about them. I thought that would be a more uh, organic and interesting way to go about it. Um, so the next section, and that section is very small as well. So the next section is called Quinta Cimmerillion, and it is uh, about the shaping of the Earth and the Cimmerils. Uh, and this is going to be a huge section, and it is broken down into chapters as well within that and the first chapter is about it's called the of the beginning of days <clears throat> it's going to be about the valar which just to recap a little bit uh, a lot of the einar descended down into arda uh, to become a part of the world and to help shape it and prepare it for humans and elves to come about and there was uh there were the valar which were kind of the greatest of these uh, and there were seven lords of the Valar and seven queens of the Valar. Uh, and I talked a little bit about some of them, like Manwe, Aule, and Ulmo, um, who were the lords of the wind and air, the lords of the earth, the lord of uh, the waters. <clears throat> and then there were the queens um, of the Valar, which there's uh, Varda, uh, and she's kind of the the queen of stars and light um, and she's Monway's wife basically and the elves love her best of all and uh, be just because you'll see when they awaken that the stars are kind of the first things they see and they're amazed by them and Varda is um, also called Elbereth by the elves so when uh, when Frodo has the file of water that contains uh, Light from Arendil, which is a star and also uh, a guy, who which I'll get into his story later. Um, he invokes Elbereth's name, and presumably Varda hears him and uh, helps save him from Shelob with the light within the glass. Then there's um, Ulmo is pretty much living the bachelor life. He doesn't. He pretty much keeps to himself. He doesn't really take form much. He just kind of exists in all the waters of Arda. Uh, he doesn't like to take part in many of the Valar's councils. He doesn't like to come up on land, which is good because elves and men are terrified of him when he comes up on land because he just looks like giant, dark, foamy waves striding across the landscape. So he looks terrifying. Uh, he pretty much keeps to himself in the water. Uh, and if it's really important, he'll come. he'll come up and participate. But he's always kind of listening. He can hear everything in the world. 
and there are a couple times when the Valar are pissed off at elves or men, and you'll see why later. Um, and even then, Olmo has kind of a soft spot in his heart for elves and men, and he'll continue to help them, even when the Valar have kind of turned their backs on on them. And Ale and Melkor are uh, considered very close, because both like to craft things um, of their own making. They like to try to think of things to make that no one else has thought of before. The difference is Ale is kind of selfless in his craftsmanship. He likes to make things and just give them away. Um, if other people are working on things, he likes to pitch in and give his advice. Whereas Melkor, if other people are making something that is cool, Melkor likes to try to mess it up. Um, because he's jealous of, of anything that anyone does that is better than what he does. So he's constantly trying to... And that kind of... While at first he has all these new, interesting ideas, he's so jealous of other people's creations that he ends up just trying to corrupt and ruin and steal their creations instead of coming up with his own things. And that just ends up becoming his, his M.O., so those are the some of the... Oh, and Ale's wife uh, is Yavanna. And she is all about plants and green things that grow. Uh, and you'll see the Ents are, are creations of hers. Um, and she and Ale, for the most part, get along. But you'll see there's... Uh, at least I can think of one time in particular where they're kind of uh, at odds with each other. Just because Ale doesn't much care for things that grow. He cares about stones and gems and precious metals and the things he can create with those. Um, so that's kind of it. They have kind of an interesting relationship and we'll get into that later as well. This chapter is called Quenta Cimmerillion uh, and it's it's um, subtitled The History of the Cimmerils um, and it's all about the things that the Valar made or tried to make in those early days um, and then it's it also includes things like the awakening of the elves and this chapter is I think the longest in the book or the, it's not really a chapter it's more of a section is like the longest in the book uh, if I recall correctly um, so it'll pro I'll probably break it down into the individual chapters um, within the Quintus Cimmerillion like I said the first of which is of the beginning of days so I've already said, uh, when Melkor descended down into Arda, he immediately just claimed that it was going to be his kingdom, and that it all belonged to him. Uh, and he just set about ruining everything that the Valar and the Maiar uh, were working toward. And so there's this one Valar named Tolkis, Tolkis the Strong, and he is awesome. He's, he's just a happy-go-lucky guy. And his favorite things are contests of strength. And he doesn't use any weapons. He just fights with his hands. And he doesn't ride any horses because he's just the fastest thing around anyway. So, and he's just... <laughs> it happens a couple times in the Cimmerillion, I think, where he just... He wrestles Melkor into submission. Just physically wrestles him into submission. Uh, and so... When he when he finds out about Melkor just messing stuff up, he immediately runs out and <laughs> tries to uh, tries to subdue Melkor, and Melkor just runs away. So for a little while, there's peace because Melkor just flees 
Arda and just kind of broods for a little bit because Tolkis is running around looking to looking to wrestle him. And I should probably clarify um, that up until this point, Arda, the world, is completely dark. It's in it's in complete darkness. So while Melkor is pretty much out of the picture for a while, uh, the Valar really get productive, and they make they finally make all these lands and mountains and seas, and Yavanna, you know, makes all kinds of plants in her little plant lab. Uh, she just crafts all these plants and does her Mendel breeding things with her seeds. Then Ale, um, Yavanna asks Ale to make some lamps for the for the lighting of the world, um, or at least for Middle Earth, which is the Eastern continent. Uh, so they made two. He made two giant lamps, and Varda then filled those lamps with light because that's what she's all about—is light. And uh, Manwe hallows them. And they put them on gigantic pillars in the ocean, one north of Middle-earth and one south of Middle-earth. Uh, so then it was just light. It was just daytime all the time in Middle-earth during this time because there are these gigantic lamps in the north and south of the continent <clears throat> that uh, that lit it. So this, as you can already see, there wasn't a very <clears throat> scientific... Uh, view of how this was set up. So, I mean, the Einar made this flat world that apparently does not, not rotate. There's no sun. They just made this flat world that exists in darkness. <clears throat> and then they lit it with giant lamps. So, uh, yeah, definitely not the same as how we see our current world that we live on now. So, and I think that's really cool. Because it's like, um, it's entirely fantasy. There's no kind of logic and um, scientific thought kind of interfering with this fantasy world. Um, because if you if you have a fantasy world and you start to talk about the the scientific laws that are involved in the making of the world and things like that, if you start to talk about gravity and you start to talk about rotation and orbits then you're kind of I don't want to say you're mixing sci-fi with fantasy because obviously those scientific laws are not science fiction they're actual and real but you but you're taking yourself out of the fantasy world to think about whether such and such is possible and it shouldn't matter whether it's possible in real life because it's fantasy so I really like that Tolkien just made this completely alien and different and almost medieval in the way that like he doesn't try to to match these these fantasy this fantasy world to any of the the rules that govern the real world um which is awesome because then you don't question then you don't question anything that happens in this world because hey it's a it's a flat world lit by gigantic lamps crafted by gods basically you know anything can happen who who cares what's possible at this point so while the Valar are building and uh, crafting this world uh, they haven't really created their city of Valinor yet um, so if I mention that I jumped ahead of myself so they they haven't really created the city that they're gonna live in there they kind of have this base of operations um, that's this 
island, this island called Almaran. And uh, so they're pretty much based in this uh, island. So Yavanna's making all of these plants all over the place and they thrive under the light of the lamps and especially in the middle of the continent where the light of the two lamps meets they the plants are really great there uh it's just a it's just an arboretum a planetary arboretum and so they all get they're all pretty tired and they decide and Manwe declares a feast that they're going to have on this little island and uh, all of the Valar come to feast, and the Maiar that are helping them. And they and Aule and Tolkis are super tired. They're two of the strongest, uh, two of the strongest Valar, and they're super tired because they've been working extra hard. I mean, Aule is obviously since he's kind of the god of this earth, he's been making mountains and all kinds of stuff. And Tolkis. You know, he's super strong, so they've been asking him to do all kinds of stuff. They've been asking him to carry giant U-Haul boxes and boulders. So, they have this feast, and uh, Ale and Tolkis are super tired. Tolkis ends up marrying um, one of the other Valar named Nessa, who I think her thing is just that she's she likes to run around with deer and uh, dance. I think she likes to dance. So Tolkis marries her, and she's Orome's sister. Orome is like the, the hunter of the Valar. He rides around on a giant horse and has a hunting horn, and he likes to hunt foul beasts that are made by Melkor, and you'll see there are a couple times when he just rides into Middle-earth to chase Melkor off. Um, so they have all this merriment and food, and there's a wedding, uh, Tolkis marries Nessa, and then everybody just rests. And Tolkis and Aule, who are just exhausted, uh, catch some sleep. And Melkor's like, "All right, now's my chance." And Melkor, who has been out in the void, sneaks back into Arda through the north. <clears throat> and he's gathered. He's gathered kind of a, a, a an army at this point, uh, a small army. He's been recruiting uh, Maiar to his cause. Some of the lesser spirits, uh, either either recruiting or just perverting them and corrupting them and bringing them under his thrall. So while they're all sleeping, he sneaks into the north of, um, the north of Arda, uh, and he's in, um, Middle Earth, and he starts to delve deep into the ground and build this giant fortress for himself and his followers called Utumno. Um, so he just starts building this giant fortress of darkness. So as a result of Melkor making this fortress, um, his evil kind of starts to spread out from this place. So l wildlife and plants start to get sick and kind of rot or become evil, like beasts become just murderous, uh, crazy animals. Uh, so the Valar kind of are are on to the fact that Melkor's around, but they can't find his fortress. Um, so they start to look for his fortress, and Melkor just decides that he's going to... Uh, he, he who strikes first wins. So he just runs out of his fortress, just kicks over the two lamps that are lighting the world, he just throws them down, and they're so giant that the throwing down of the lamps 
breaks the land and like creates these just tsunamis and stuff so water is just crashing into the land and the land is breaking apart so the Valar had worked really hard to create this symmetrical beautiful world and now it's just it's just broken apart um, so when I was saying Middle Earth earlier I was probably incorrect because I don't know really what the world looked like during that period because we only know what it looks like after it gets broken and only partially um, like the maps of the things that go on during um, during uh, these events are are not really around. I, I have a friend who says he has an atlas of uh, a, like Tolkien's works, um, so maybe that includes it, but I've never seen it, so I don't know. So anyway, uh, Melkor throws down these lamps, and by the way, when the lamps shatter or crash into the ground, it creates huge fires. So basically, this was called the Spring of Arda, after they had had this uninterrupted peace and this time of creation and all these plants are everywhere and animals and now it's just the land is broken apart there's wildfires and tsunamis and things are just not going well at this point so amid all the confusion and uh, and now the darkness since the lamps are shattered uh, Melkor kinda made good his escape uh, which he did quickly because he was terrified because he could hear the roaring of the angry Valar and he could hear Tulkus's giant footsteps as Tulkus ran around looking for someone to wrestle. So Melkor flees into his um, his fortress and kind of lays low there. And the Valar try to find him but for the most part they are focused on trying to calm down the world which is now uh, broken apart and there's fires everywhere so they're trying to put out fires while uh, so that really focused on finding Melkor so and so the Valar's dwelling there on that island of Elmarin was destroyed completely so they decided to set up their new dwelling in this western continent of Amman which uh, will later is later the Undying Lands but right now it's just the western com continent of Amman so they leave Middle-earth um, and they go over to this western continent um, and at this point they're afraid they the the world has been changed a lot from what they originally planned but they're afraid to do much with it now they're afraid to do any more mountain making and valley making and ocean making because at this point they don't know when elves or men are gonna be created when they're gonna come about and they're afraid that if they continue throwing land around and bulldozing that they're gonna <laughs> just annihilate elves or men because it says they're not sure where they're gonna they're not sure where they're gonna come into existence or when so they're afraid to kinda keep messing around with the land at this point so their hands are kinda tied and they kinda have to leave the world as it is then so it's during this time that the Valar kinda make their final dwelling which is Valinor um, so they, on Amon, the continent of Amon, they raise up this giant mountain range to form as a barrier, and they have this huge mountain uh, upon which are the halls of um, Manwe and Varda, where they can sit and see out over the world. Um, so they create this beautiful city for them to to dwell in, while they while they kind of finish their preparations, and. 
they made Valinor so beautiful and so perfect that it they say it's even more beautiful than Middle Earth was during the Spring of Arda, where they had that uninterrupted uh, period of creation. Everything in uh, Valinor was hallowed by the Valar, so nothing ever died. It's just a land of deathless, uncorrupted life. Nothing there ever withers or rots uh, or anything like that. It's just, it's basically a heaven on earth uh, that the Valar have made for themselves on this continent. And that's why it's later called the Undying Lands. And it's during this time that Yavanna um, goes and sits on this hill, this grassy hill, uh, around Valinor, and she starts to sing a, like a song of power, and she starts to cry, and her tears water the ground. Um, and as she sings, the Valar kind of gather around and watch, and these two plants start to grow up on the hill. And there was no sound in all the world except for her, her song. And the saplings grow, and they become these giant two flowering trees. Uh, and they were called the Two Trees of Valinor. And they were the basically Yavanna's greatest creations. And one had dark green leaves that were, that on the bottoms, the leaves were shining silver. And uh, a dew of silver light fell from this tree. And uh, the other tree had leaves of young green. And the, they had edges of glittering gold and uh, flowers of yellow flame formed on the on the tree and they they spilled golden dew upon the ground and so and from that tree there came forth great warmth and great light uh, it says so they were called Telperion and Laurelin and so these these trees kind of waxed and waned in opposition so one of the trees would brighten with light while the other dimmed and then it would reverse so they they created these these alternating lights of gold and silver so it basically created this day-night cycle it says in seven hours the glory of each tree waxed to full and waned again to naught, and each awoke once more to life an hour before the other ceased to shine so basically each tree would awake an hour before the other stopped so there would be this hour in Valinor where the the two the light of the two trees would kind of mingle and it was just the most beautiful thing ever so they the so Valinor is lit by these two beautiful trees but if i remember correctly middle earth is still pretty dark at this point i don't think their light really reaches all the way over there so it created these these 12 hour days so the, the dew that fell from them, Varda collected. Varda collected the, the silver and gold dew uh, because she's like she you know she's all about light. Uh, so there were these just giant wells of beautiful shining gold and silver dew, um, and they started to count the days at this point when the flowering of the silver tree began. Uh, so they started counting time for the first time and they were called the Days of the Bliss of Valinor. But in the meantime, uh, Middle-earth is still lit only by stars that Varda had created, and Melkor obviously still dwelt there. So, And the Valar, the Valar had pretty much uh, lived in Valinor at this point, and had kind of avoided Middle-earth for a time, because things were pretty messed up there. 
uh, and they were creating this paradise for themselves. But uh, Monway didn't fully ignore Middle-earth because he could see so much from his mountains and his birds and uh, I think he also had some Maiar that took the shape of eagles and other birds and probably those are the same eagles that uh, save Frodo and Sam at the end of Return of the King. Definitely they are Monway's eagles that save them but I think I am almost positive that they are Maiar and not just ordinary eagles. So Monway is still pretty concerned with Middle-earth. It's not like he's given up on it. He's just still thinking of what what he's going to do about that situation. Ulmo, meanwhile, just kind of chills in the in the outer ocean, probably plays his, his horns from time to time. He has these horns made of shell that he plays, and um, it, the music is so powerful that anybody who hears it basically has a longing for the sea for the rest of their lives after that. And if I'm not mistaken, that happens in Lord of the Rings. Legolas, uh, when he gets near the ocean, suddenly feels a longing in his heart for for the ocean, and I, it, he hears the cry of seagulls, I think, and from then on he has this longing to be around the sea. And I think this is a really cool section because it kind of sums up... Uh, what Olmo is like, even though he seems kind of isolated and indifferent to everything because he rarely takes part in the Valar's councils and things like that. But but this kind of sums him up. It says, um, And thus it was by the power of Olmo that even under the darkness of Melkor life coursed still through many secret loads and the earth did not die. And to all who were lost in that darkness or wandered far from the light of the Valar, the ear of Olmo was ever open. Nor was he ever nor has he ever forsaken Middle Earth, and whatsoever may since have befallen of ruin or of change, he has not ceased to take thought for it, and will not until the end of days. So, no matter what happens, Ulmo is always paying attention to what's going on in Middle Earth, even though the Valar are over here making Valinor in their own personal paradise. Ulmo is still constantly trying to provide for Middle Earth under which is basically under Melkor's rule at this point. Melkor is kind of undisputed over in over in Middle-earth. And uh, Yavanna would visit Middle-earth sometimes during this time uh, and try to heal some of the damage that Melkor had done to the plants and things like that. And she would come back to Valinor and try to get the Valar up off their asses to go oust Melkor from Middle-earth. So, I mean, several of the Valar are still invested and they're trying to get the Valar over there to make like an actual war on Melkor. And Arome, the hunter of the Valar, would ride his horse off into Middle-earth and uh, just thunder around and blow his horn and he has a spear and a bow and he just runs around hunting Melkor's beasts and basically every time he would show up Melkor would just be terrified and shivering in his fortress and wait for Arome to leave so that he could just go back to doing whatever he was doing. So basically Arome would just ride over there from time to time to scare the bejesus out of Melkor and then leave. Um, and at this point this, the book talks a little about um, how the children of Iluvatar, elves and men, are basically devised entirely by Eru himself uh, and not any of the Valar. And for that reason it describes the the Einar, all of the Einar, 
the Valar, the Maiar, um, as kin to elves and men, and not their elders um, or their parents. Um, and it describes them as their chieftains rather than their masters. Um, so even though they're greater in power and in majesty than elves and men, they're not their masters um, or their bosses or anything like that. They're like giant older brothers. <laughs> and so, and it talks about how the Einar should never force men or elves to do their bidding and that they do try to sometimes but that it never ever turns to good that if if because they're not their masters and if they ever try to force elves and men to do something then it's going to turn to evil even if the intent was originally good and this section also talks a little bit about the differences between elves and men that Eru had come up with and he talks about how elves are n more similar to the Einar in that they live forever, more or less, um, because they can still be killed um, and they can still die of um, sorrow. Like they can become so sad that they just lose the will to live. But they're they're most similar to the Einar. They live forever and they create the fairest things. Um, and they're just beautiful, and they're they're long-lasting, and they create amazing, amazing, beautiful creations. Um, and then he talks about to men. He gives strange gifts, is what it says, and one of them is that he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein but they should have virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world beyond the music of the Einar, which is as fate to all things else. So men are basically restless uh, and always looking for something new. They're never content with what they have. So they're always trying to do something new. And they're also, they have the power to shape their own destiny, basically, outside of the music that the Einar did in the first place. But it also talks about how Eru says that that may cause men to stray often, that they may they may mess up a lot, but that in the end everything that they, they do will also make my creation even more beautiful. So no matter how often men may go astray and do evil things, in the end everything that they do will contribute to Eru's glory in the end um, so that's really cool and interesting to see because it, it kind of drives home this point that elves are not gods or godlike or angels and though they're similar to the Einar they really just serve to highlight and underscore the things that Eru gave to men that maybe even we in real life see as bad and like we don't, you'd have a tough time finding many people who think that death is a a pretty nice, cool gift to be given. But it it describes it in counterpoint to the elves, because the elves live so long and they see so much, and to them, so little can be changed because they are guided by the Einar's song, and they. I mean, think of it in terms of Elrond. 
Uh, Elrond doesn't contribute a whole lot during the events of the Lord of the Rings. He pretty much stays in Rivendell the entire time. And if you think about it from his point of view, why should he think that they can destroy the ring? Because he was already there, he saw one of the strongest men in existence, Isildur, take the ring all the way to Mount Doom, and in the end he, he failed to throw it in. He just failed to do that. And so, why would Elrond think that Frodo Baggins from the Shire would be able to do what Isildur couldn't? And it's not that he's stupid or blind, it's just he he's lived so long and he's seen so much, and I think a lot of elves are this way, that they have a hard time seeing that things could change or be different than they were the last time around. Whereas men have such short lives and are relatively unconstrained, so they want to do what they want to do, whether or not they don't have any memories of failings and failings and failings holding them back from trying to do something that has failed before. So they'll try to do something that they want to do or that they think should be done even though it's it's been tried and failed so many times before. And that's described as a virtue basically. Uh, that they will that they'll mess up a lot but that they have potential to do things that the elves just can't do. Um, and I really feel like I didn't articulate that well, but there it is. And uh, most of the elves don't get it. Uh, they look at the men and they see these sh sad, short-lived things, and they it says that he does. Elves believe that men are often a grief to Manwe, who knows the most of the mind of Iluvatar. So the elves believe that men are just a. Uh, they they just piss off the Valar and they they're just kind of a an annoyance and they think that men resemble Melkor most of all the Einar even though Melkor himself fears and hates men and elves even if they die of being slain or from grief uh, they their souls are gathered to the halls of Mandos who I don't think I talked about but Mandos is one of the Valar. And he's one of the coolest, in my opinion. But his name isn't actually Mandos. I forget what his, his real name is. But Mandos is the name of the place that he lives. But everyone calls him that. So kind of like Hades. How Hades is a god. And also Hades can be used to refer to hell. So Mandos has these halls of Mandos. Uh, where departed elf souls go. And some it says, Whence they may in time return. So even elves that are dead their souls are still around and they may still return basically but when men die their souls go nobody really knows where they leave the world and so elves refer to them as the guests or the strangers because men are a mystery to elves basically elves elves feel like they and the Einar they pretty much know what happens to them uh, even if they die they know what they know where they're where they go but men they don't they don't know. They don't get it. They don't understand the gifts that Eru made for them. And so, in a way, they kind of frighten them, and they don't like them that much. They're Not not that they don't like them that much, but they're kind of alien to them. And I like this uh, little quote. It says, Death is their fate, the gift of Iluvatar, 
which as time wears, even the power shall envy. So, at least men have an end. Whereas, the Einar and the, the elves, they are basically there. They're there, they're constrained to the earth until the world ends. Um, so they'll, they get to, they just have to stick through it, through thick and thin, until the world is completely over. Whereas men, they're there for a short time, and then poof, they, they die, and they get to leave. And it describes why death is viewed so negatively. Um, it talks about how Melkor basically made death seem to be bad. It says he cast his shadow upon it and confounded it with darkness and brought forth evil out of good and fear out of hope. So what was originally supposed to be a gift from Eru, Melkor has now twisted into something that men are to fear and to dread. They twisted what was supposed to be a gift into, into a curse. And that's pretty much the end of this chapter. So I, I, I rambled on about a lot of things, but the, the overarching story of it was uh, they come into the earth, there's the spring of Arda, they have this time of creation because Tolkis chases Melkor away, and Melkor leaves the world for a while. Uh, and then they rest, and Melkor builds his fortress, and then he, they, he tips over their lamps, and so then they, they create Valinor, um, and they create these two beautiful trees, one gold and one silver, uh, that light their, their beautiful, beautiful paradise. Um, so right now, Middle-earth is not in a good place. Uh, there are a couple of the Valar that sneak over there every now and then to try to undo what Melkor is doing, but... Melkor kind of has the run of the place at this point. And so this 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 is one of the chapters I like a lot. And the future chapters in this section also uh, are really cool. So you, you get to see more interactions between the Valar. And uh, so, yeah, that, that'll be the end of this episode. And I hope you liked it. And I hope you look forward to the next one.